Case file number 4.6. Operation Paperclip. Observed by Agent Crenshaw. Subject 1, alias Hackalope. Subject has a history of working in computer security for over 20 years. He has been observed to several Fortune 500 companies and federal agencies during that period. He has been amassing historical information related to espionage and covert action as well as corporate malfeasance. Subject 2, alias Emir. Subject has a history of working in computer security for the last 10 years. He has been observed at NASA facilities regularly. We've also tracked him to the gym where he seems to be bodybuilding. We are amassing evidence to charge him with felony for skipping leg day and curls on the squat rack. Subjects are suspected of having information related to hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subdirector of the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. All right, so today we're back to uh, more CIA stories and random things. I will give a forewarning for this episode, though. Uh, it's going to be pretty hard to like make jokes and uh, do little quips about the topic for today, uh, because today we're going to be talking about Operation Paperclip. I did not see that coming. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, that might be the only joke we make the whole episode. Oh, no, I, I got a few here, here and there spice in. Got to keep it a little bit lively. Yeah, but despite its name, this is not an operation about the Windows Clippy, like going into uh, Nazi Germany and taking out some soldiers and stuff like that. Yeah, he was not part of the Howling Commandos with Captain America. Yeah, yeah, exactly. With his his catchphrase, it looks like you're uh, trying to write a letter as he like (laughs) mows down people. This is in part full credit to uh, author uh, Annie Jacobson. She wrote a book called Operation Paperclip. And a lot Mm -hmm. of the stuff I pulled from here were just... um, sources from new york times and other things that pulled uh quotes from her book or like had interviews there's a few youtube interviews with her brief little snippets of her book and everything like that anyways in 1944 the u.s and its allies uh launched this secret mission with the code name operation paperclip the aim of it was pretty simple they wanted to preserve german weapons including biological and chemical agents but they realized pretty uh early on that the weapons were just not enough they were going to need the scientists as well. So they decided to bring in like Nazi doctors, physicists, chemists, all other sorts of scientists and everything like that. And I don't know if you're going to go into this, but it should be noted that the Russians were doing basically exactly the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, didn't, I didn't go into that, but yeah, yeah, exactly. The book by Andy Jacobson goes into the story of the scientists and exposes uh, some of the backstories that the U.S. sought to hide from the public on these guys. In the book, she tracks 21 Nazi scientists and technicians. Eight of these worked directly for either Hitler, Himmler, or Goring. Fifteen were active Nazi party members, and ten served in squads like the SA or SS. Yeah. Did you have anybody in the in the SD? None in the SD. I'm not entirely familiar with the SD. Which one was that? The SD is the Sika Heinsdienst, and I know it because I know that a lot of the folks that uh, Reinhard Galen brought into organization Galen in Germany were from the SD and the SD was a criminal organization just like the 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 SS oh really okay yeah so all of these folks were war criminals by the standards of the Nuremberg trials yeah they weren't part of operation paperclip because they they, they never made it to the to the US they weren't scientists or anything like that right, but it was right. a similar it was a similar program on the intelligence side that was put in place to try and fight communism because one thing that the reich and the americans 
ended up having in common uh, was despising communism and mm-hmm. like that's its own discussion but the fact is that america got in bed metaphorically with with some pretty awful people and i mean yeah. that's that is apparently not the only time it happened <laughs> yeah 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 exactly and you, you mentioned the nuremberg trials actually six of these scientists were tried at nuremberg <laughs> And this isn't the the first time to call out this operation either. Um, you know, Jacobson was not the first. Many media outlets exposed paperclip as early as December 1946. And Albert Einstein, Eleanor Roosevelt, and uh, Rabbi Stephen Wise were all publicly opposed to this program. And, and to build on it being known contemporaneously, there is a Tom Lehrer song. I don't remember which one, but... Uh, the missiles go up and they come and wh- where they come down. That's not my department, says Werner von Braun. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. You're going to talk about Werner Werner von Braun, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah, we're, we're oh, good. Him. Yeah, yeah. He's the he's the one guy I, I actually know a thing or two about about Operation Paperclip. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna highlight at least three guys uh, specifically. Mm-hmm. the The book though from Jacobson was able to kind of get much more intelligence because back in 1998. Uh, President Clinton signed the Nazi War Crimes Disclosure Act. So she was able to comb through a lot of declassified material and intelligence documents to pull this data from. That's great. I mean, I think we've talked about it a little bit before. From about 2010-ish on, we've just gotten so much more data on what actually happened in a lot of corners of the intelligence field right, yeah. in, in that time period because of things like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll talk about a few of them. Just to kind of talk about how it all got started. When the Soviets and the Americans were marching towards Berlin and Munich, uh, there were a lot of scientific intelligence groups just kind of scattered in amongst all these soldiers. And they were tasked with finding the Third Reich's weapons. An example from Jacobson's book cites that these groups had no idea what Hitler was actually doing. <laughs> it was kind of a shock to us. I mean, a lot of it, all of it was a shock to us, but specifically the weapons um, Hitler had created an entire arsenal of nerve agents, and that he was he was working on the bubonic plague weapon as well. And this was all kind of discovered by these scientists, and they were like, "Holy shit! There's way more here than we thought we were going to have to yeah. like try to capture." Chemical agents and biological agents. Mm-hmm. You may have heard Zyklon B. Yeah, derivatives of which were used as pesticides in the fifties and sixties. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I didn't I didn't write it down here in my notes, but there there actually was a. I think it was an army general or someone by the last name of Green, who mm-hmm. kind of subjected a few of his soldiers unknowingly to um, small doses of some biological weapon just to see how they would react to it. And it pacified them. And it was like, oh, OK, like in the future, this could be something we could possibly look at to save lives is to pacify them with a neurological or biological agent. Not just in sci-fi anymore. No, I hadn't no. Heard about that one. So this this was the point when the Pentagon realized they like we needed to gather up all these weapons for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And part of Operation Paperclip, there was a huge effort to basically whitewash the past of all these scientists because they were they were well-known Nazis. They were they were very mm-hmm. high up in the ranks. Army intelligence was asked to rewrite uh, dossiers and even generals in the Pentagon who knew uh, about all this stuff and they knew they needed these scientists they more or less rewrote parts of history to cover for these guys history is written by the victors right mm-hmm. <laughs> jacobson writes on how these were not like your low-level grunts you know they were all mm-hmm. very 
high up in the ranks. And in order to be that high, you need to kind of be on board with the Nazi ideals. She compares it to a, a hedge fund manager, like how you wouldn't believe if a hedge fund manager who rose through these ranks making tons and tons of money were to suddenly turn to you and say he didn't really believe in capitalism. Yeah. You know, he he was just, he was just doing it to earn a living and kind of ran with it. And like, you know, he wasn't fully on board with the sort of thing. Yeah. There's a lot of Werner von Braun apologists where I'm like, uh, I don't know that I believe you, man. Yeah, yeah. And this is this is one of those like very muddled gray areas because if you were that high ranking, I, I don't believe that you were just kind of in it because you had to be. I don't want to steal your thunder, but there are things about von Braun where even if he was not ideologically with the Nazi party, the fact was that he had a depraved indifference to the things that they were doing. Yeah, 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 exactly. And that's bad enough in my book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to sit on the sidelines, um, you're still culpable in that way. But that's also where you kind of get that gray area between the black and the white, because I've read quite a few books on World War II history. And, you know, there, there was one book, I can't remember the name of it, but basically when the Allies found Dachau, mm -hmm. they turned to the town that was nearby who had been benefiting from all of this this forced labor and marched mm -hmm. all of the townspeople to the concentration camp and forced them to bury the dead and kind of see for themselves what had been going on. Cause a lot of them knew more or less what was happening, but kind of turned a blind eye to it. They didn't have to have it in their face, but they were. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They benefited from, from the labor going on, but they, you know, didn't make routine visits there and they didn't take part in any of yeah. the atrocities being committed. So they were kind of like, well, you know, I'm, I'm not to blame. Yeah. And I know, enough about the way that the death camps operated to know that I can't stomach knowing anymore. Yeah, there's yeah, a lot of a lot of stuff there. On on the other side though, um you have people, I don't know if you're familiar with the battle for uh, Schloss Eider. No, I don't know that one. There's I think it by the book title, The Battle for the uh, Schloss Eider. I, I had never known about this. There's there's a band called Sabaton. Um mm -hmm. I believe they're Swedish, Swedish metal band. Almost all of their songs, or probably 100% of their songs, are based on actual historical battles or um, units and tons of history. And they have a song about this. And this was the one time in World War II when Allied soldiers and Nazis actually came together. Or I guess I should say Allied soldiers and German forces came together to fight the Nazis because they weren't actually uh, yeah. Nazis. But in, in that story, there's a uh, major, uh, Josef uh, Gengel, who helped assist the U.S. troops in rescuing a bunch of French political prisoners that were held in this castle, and mm -hmm. I believe it was Austria. And he, he gave his life during this, um, trying to usher the prisoners to safety. And a few of his other soldiers died during the battle as well to repel um, these SS battalions that had um, encircled this castle. And I can't remember, I should have grabbed his name too, but there was just one American group of i think like five individuals with their tank it was just a single tank that showed up at this place and helped try to hold off all these until uh, reinforcements arrived um and they were mm -hmm. able to save all the, the french uh, political prisoners but you know in in, in the book they kind of cite the fact that yosef had no idea really what was going on you know he was a huge uh, diehard hitler stan and as soon as reports of hitler's death reached the troops down in austria it was kind of there was a split between the ones that had just joined the army because they were either conscripted or forced to, and mm -hmm. to not do so meant their families were going to be murdered. Mm -hmm. And then the other side were people that were like super on board and gung ho about it. 
Yeah. And, you know, usually those people kind of found themselves in the SS. Uh, my understanding was the SS was, was significantly smaller than the, than, than the, um, the main German military. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It was much smaller, but I mean, it's just, you know, to me, it's a very muddled area. Like we want to think the best of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that's very easy to do when we're kind of sitting on the sidelines of history, looking at these people and kind of criticizing, you know, these lower level actions. I, I'll, I'll fully criticize the higher level people because they knew what was going on and yeah, still well, did nothing. There's an example in psychology that I know of from the from the book, uh, The Authoritarians, that talked about a reserve police battalion. Basically, so these folks were, were not directly soldiers. They, they, mm-hmm. they were they were in the military doing basically crowd control kind of stuff behind lines and rear echelon stuff. And they were all like cops at one point, but they weren't like diehard Nazis or anything like that. They weren't right. They hadn't gone through the indoctrination and they pretty much all, well, they were ordered to go with basically find Jews and, and come back and, and shoot them in firing squads. And mm-hmm. most of them pretty much did it, even in a situation where the officer was like, you know, if you don't think you can do this, I'll find something else for you to do. Right. Yeah. Like the cult of personality, the method of authoritarianism, the structure of the, of the organization with anything resembling military discipline has a pretty profound effect on what people will comply with. I mean, that's a complicated subject from in Mm. in psychology, but it's a real effect. Yeah. I, I'm trying to stare at my bookcase right now because I have a few (laughs) books. uh Um, but there, there's the one that I've only partly got through, but it was basically kind of mm-hmm. about the psychology of the German people and how so many of them could kind of turn a blind eye to this um, sort of thing. Yeah. And I'm, I should say that I'm not excusing it. I'm just saying mm-hmm. that this is one of those things where we as responsible uh, adults and citizens of the world need to be aware that these things can happen and they can even happen to us. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's very easy for us to yeah look at it and say, like, I would never do that. But when put in that situation, I don't know. Yeah. Anyways, back to Operation Paperclip. One of the most famous people, obviously, to come from it, we've already mentioned, uh, was Werner von Braun. And he was behind the V-2 rockets uh, and was brought yes. to help the U.S. government and NASA, especially, mm-hmm. you know, with our space program. If you dig into his past, though, uh, you see that not only was he a Nazi, he was also a member of the SS. Mm-hmm. And he was not fully in charge of a facility uh, by the name of Nordhausen, but he was in charge of science at this uh, facility, which was a slave labor facility. And there was another one called uh, Pinamunda. Pinamunda. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The stories of things that happened in Pinamunda, because that's where the V2 and the V1 rockets were developed, mm-hmm. tested, and assembled. Again, I don't want to steal. I, I don't want to steal some of your research, but some of the worst things that I heard that I've heard about him have to do with Pinamunda. Right, right. Yeah, he he being von Braun traveled to nearby uh, Buchenwald uh, concentration camp, not like very often, but routinely enough. Whenever he was running low on technicians, and he would handpick slaves from them uh, to pull back into his facility to work for him. So clearly, he was not. He could not claim ignorance to the fact that concentration camps were a thing and those things right. going he, on. He had actually been there. Yeah. I in in the show notes, I have a full article about uh, von Braun and the slave labor camp he worked in, but just to cite a few things here in the podcast, um, there was an operation from the Royal Air Force called Operation Hydra, which saw a waves of bombers uh sent to Pinamunda. 
And 600 or so bombers dropped about 3 million pounds of explosives on that camp um, and incendiary bombs and killed around 740 people. Almost all of them were slave laborers, yep. uh, forces. And minor tangent here, it's something you still see nowadays when we do military strikes with bombs, even with smart bombs, is just massive casualties among the civilian population. Frankly, tactics you know. like that go back to the Mongols. The Mongols mm. would take, take folks that they've enslaved and put them in the front of their charges when when they were sieging other folks. But the worst story I heard of Pinamunda, and, and Von Braun was not directly responsible for it, but I'm damn sure he was he knew about it. The reason why Pinamunda could survive that bombing is that it was a mine and they hollowed out more of it so they could actually assemble and and prep V2 rockets vertically uh-huh. in them. And so they needed to make the mine shafts bigger. And so they used slave labor to do that. And again, right. von Braun is not credited as the is is not credited as maybe not the word uh, accused of being the guy who ran this, but the guy who was who was essentially the head of the of running the labor and stuff in Pinamunda. He was worried that these slaves with tools might revolt, so he made them do it with their bare hands. Mm. Right. Yeah. I um, I didn't find that. So like that's that's news to me and horrible. Uh, there was one incident where these these prisoners work seventy two hours a week or more, and they were fed quote unquote uh, subsistence, mm-hmm. you know, enough to keep them alive. So they were not being, I, I guess, quote unquote, worked to death like other concentration camps where they were not being fed at all. But these people were only being fed eleven hundred calories a day, which is not enough. Mm-hmm. And like you said, they were in these dank, dark areas and. Lung and heart disease were uh, epidemic in these facilities. In fact, deaths averaged around 160 a day just from uh, lung and heart disease. And when the prisoners asked for improved conditions, uh, Hans Kammler had his soldiers just turn on them and shoot them dead and killed 80 of them. It wasn't even a riot. It was just a peaceful protest. Yeah. There's a reason why the Nazis are the go-to villains in when we're talking about any kind of modern horrors because yeah. they did everything and they did it in a world that didn't have you couldn't even credit with like the mongols this is like this is the world they lived in mm-hmm. they escalated to a degree that nobody had seen for centuries locally by anybody yeah 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 exactly they were the go-to baddies for pretty much all the video games um, I had growing up. Like Call of Duty was pretty much uh, allies versus Nazis for so many iterations till it finally went to just Americans versus Russians. But if you, if you need a, a bad guy in a movie or video game or book or anything that just you want the audience to immediately hate, the go-to is easily just make them a Nazi. Yeah, well, I mean, they had those Hugo Boss uniforms, right? Mm-hmm. Von Braun in 1969 along with Arthur Rudolph, Ebhard Ries, and Kurt DeBoss were awarded the NASA Distinguished Service Medal. Von Braun, Hans von Ohain, and Croft Arnold uh, Erich were also awarded the Goddard uh, Astronautics Award, which is the highest honor given to notable achievements in astronautics. And it should be noted that the Pinamunda archives and von Braun's work were extremely important and very likely instrumental in getting us to the moon and and us leading the way to uh, to intercontinental ballistic missiles 
he made, among other innovations, the idea of regenerative, regenerative cooling in rocket engines. Like mm-hmm. he was genuinely brilliant, genuinely moved the, the, the science of, of, of rocketry forward, which is the reason why these accommodations were made, why we got in bed with Nazis, because yeah. the science was there. But this is one of those things. It's in the past and you don't know what you would have done in the moment. And it's a really hard decision. Everything is history at this point. So it's like mm-hmm. you don't get to make any choices, but you have to live with the fact that we as Americans did this. Yeah. And it's it's good to know like a lot of the science that benefited us came from these horrible things. Like there's a lot of medical science that came from these concentration camps where they literally like operated on live people and conducted horrendous experiments on them. There was a brain sample library that was very important in brain science until we had some of the techniques that we have today that exists because they took apart brains prisoners. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I forget the name of it, but like, that's a very real thing as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And for 50 years up until 2013, the uh, Strugold award, which was named after Hubertus Strugold, he was cited as the father of space medicine for his central role in developing space life support systems and the spacesuit. This was the most prestigious award in the Space Medicine Association. Mm-hmm. So, what happened in 2013? Well, the Wall Street Journal published a December 1st, 2012 article which highlighted uh, Hubertus' uh, connection to human experiments during World War II. And since then, that award has obviously been retired. Yeah, But, you know, these were some of the people we brought over and whitewashed. Dr. Benzinger, who mm-hmm. uh, Jacobson kind of cited in one of the YouTube videos I was watching, he was a doctor for the Nazis. And when he died, a uh, New York Times obituary basically wrote an entire like glowing uh, obituary for him that praised him for inventing the ear thermometer mm-hmm. of, you know, one of other things that he's done. The obituary completely left out the fact that he performed on concentration camps prisoners you can you can read the obituary like this one of the show notes. Um, and what's crazy is even doing some basic googling right now on him, I couldn't find much about him mm-hmm. to this day. Like most of what I could find was his obituary from the New York Times, a lot of stuff based around the ear thermometer, and that was about it. Yeah. And the third uh, person, Dr. Walter Triber. Uh, was another one brought over. He was the Surgeon General of the Third Reich. Mm-hmm. And he had been part of vaccine research for the Nazis. And that research was basically in protecting Nazi and German soldiers from biological weapons that the Nazis were making um, to use against their enemies. Yeah. And he was he was moved to Randolph Air Force Base in Texas. And later on, his photo was shown to a uh, Janina Iwanska, and she was asked if he had been one of the scientists who had experimented on her in Ravensbrück uh, concentration camp. She said, no, he hadn't been the ones that actually experimented on her, but he had been there at the camp. She had seen him many times. The Air Force Surgeon General pushed back on these claims. He cited that, well, if Schreiber had been a witness at Nuremberg and not a defendant, if there had been evidence against him, he would have been on trial as well. And that, I think, is complete bullshit. Like, yeah, I, I think that that's one of those things, one of those hand on the scales things, because the folks that were constructing the charges had control of some degree of control of who got charged and what evidence was presented. Yeah, yeah. And I'm pretty confident that that was 
manipulated because that really was the style of of the way that operations like that were conducted mm-hmm. based on my knowledge of other historical uses of the of the of the cia and military intelligence when they wanted to go operational like this that wouldn't have been a major barrier yeah yeah and obviously trevor denied these allegations uh he also decided though to not renew his contract with the u.s air force and instead he moved to argentina which we all know is a place that no nazis have ever gone to uh seek asylum um for world war ii yeah a fun side fact from Jacobson's book, um, General Charles uh, E. Laux, he was the chief inte- chief of intelligence for chemical warfare uh, stationed in Heidelberg. He actually became infatuated with Schreiber uh, during his time there. You know, they really hit it off. And it was only later that when Laux was looking through some uh, declassified files, he found out that Schreiber had been a Soviet mole and an international weapons dealer. So I'm going to end this episode kind of on a note well, from Jacobs. Or, well, I, I figure that, that that us being an InfoSec podcast, we should, we should probably uh, talk a little bit about what this means in terms of information security before you get your, your, your good wrap up quote. <laughs> All right. Go for it. Uh, well, I mean, so, I mean, I was just thinking as we were talking about this, the thing that I've said a lot is that the government can keep secrets. It can't keep all of the secrets and it doesn't necessarily get to choose which ones it gets to keep. Right. Some stuff makes it out. In fact, some of the stuff you talked about did make it out. Mm-hmm. Not everybody was completely covered under the umbrella of secrecy. We knew contemporaneously that Werner von Braun was worked for both sides. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that that we can parallel this to like the wiretapping warrants and even the wiretapping court stuff that has been talked about. That if you keep things secret, the people who get to make judgment calls is narrowed significantly. There's no mm-hmm. light of public morals applied to the problem. And I think that this issue comes up even in the corporate world. We've seen a lot of very significant pollution stuff, the whole Aaron Brockovich stuff and stuff like yeah. it, that secrecy can really have some very big uh, implications on culpability. And like right now, it was 75 plus years later that mm. we're really getting the full story on this and to our modern sensibilities this is pretty awful and in fact we know that contemporaneously it's pretty awful right yeah i mean they successfully kept these secrets it worked mostly mm-hmm. should it have worked should it have been done is i think a question that we have to ask ourselves when we're deciding what we're securing because i think another thing that we learned through a lot of this stuff and the stuff that came after it is that we, as the technical operations staff for a lot of the stuff, we got to make our own decisions about what it means for us to work for, um, to be part of some of this kind of things, some of these kind of things. It's needed. Our skills are needed in these things, but we shouldn't just do it because that's what we're assigned to do. We need to take some responsibility for it. Yeah, exactly. The other side of that, and the thing that I struggle with, is Edward Snowden, mm-hmm. who decided to do something against he found morally objectionable, and I'm pretty sure I'm on board with the, with a lot of those objections. But I I haven't made peace at the very least with the fact that he violated security the way that he did. It wasn't just his what he had access to; it was also he gathered credentials from other folks, from everything that I've heard, and I'm bound to not investigate the actual source material 
Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd actually not heard that he grabbed other people's credentials as well. The article that I recall reading about this was that as a technician, mm-hmm. people would give over their credentials and he used them as part of his data gathering efforts. Mm. And again, I could be incorrect about that. I'm not able to actually check the source material. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense because, I mean, every sysadmin has learned almost all of their boss's passwords because, you know, they'll, they'll just straight tell you like because they don't want to be bothered to change it. They'll just tell you what it is. I'm not accusing everybody, but I know that it was a pretty pervasive thing at times when I was in working at the Defense Department that some officers didn't really want to engage in the information technology and would give their credentials to their operations staff so that they didn't have to engage with it. Really? I mean, I'm not, I'm not surprising. Anybody in particular, I'm yeah. not saying it's pervasive. I just know that I had anecdotally heard that about more than one officer. That's surprising. Yeah. But yeah, so the way Jacobson ends her book, obviously another somber note, since anything about World War II and Nazis is going to be pretty damn somber. Yeah. She ends her book basically by asking uh, someone by the name of Gerard Meskowski. He was a Jewish survivor of the IG Farben camp, which I had not heard of. IG Farben is a very important, still a very important chemical manufacturer in Germany. Oh, okay. Uh, it was <laughs> IG Farben camp uh, was part of Auschwitz. Yes. Um, so she, she asked him basically what matters, you know, what lasts. And in response to this, he only pulled up his sleeve and revealed his blue ink tattoo to her. So let's have a moment of silence for all the concentration camp victims, including those at Dachau, Birkenwald, um, Mm -hmm. Auschwitz, um, Ravensbrück. Yeah. All right. And thank you for listening. Recording notes can be found at www.hackingthegibson.online. Follow Hack the Gibbs 1 on Twitter to get notified of new recordings. Support the continued observation of Hacking the Gibson on Patreon.